This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. So we are approaching the anniversary of Snowmageddon, and we want to help out the Lambton County Archives, which is what we're going to try and do to begin the show. Snowmageddon, who even gave it that name? I'm not even sure where that one popped up, but it was a three-day snowstorm that started on December 13th of 2010 and lasted roughly until about December the 16th of 2010. I can remember driving outside the city of London because this was one of those storms, you know, there are pockets sometimes of weather that come and just go, hey, this is a nice place. This would be a great place to raise children or dump a 100 centimeters of snow. Wow. I think I'm going to hang out here for a while. And it happens with rain, and it happens sometimes with snowstorms. That was kind of what happened during Snowmageddon. This thing just didn't move. And if you drove outside the city, you could actually look up and see. I think you had to get as far away as Talbotville. And not right away, of course, because right away everything was clouded over and blocked off and snowing. But eventually you could get to a point where you could actually see the sun somewhere off in the distance, the edge of the cloud. And, well, it caught up to us and and ended it but we have some incredible stories that happened especially along the 402 you know that if you travel the 402 during the winter it's kind of like at that woodstock spot on the 401 if we went to that woodstock spot and it's kind of it's after trying to think exactly where it is but it's after one of the one of the turnoffs and it might be Sweeberg road. I don't know, but you, you could go there now. It's probably snowing. You could go there in August. It's usually snowing, but in this case, the 402 can get absolutely icy and dicey and did. And that caused people to have to stay overnight in their vehicles. We had rescue efforts that took place. And those are the stories that Lambton County Archives are looking for. And we'll find out more about that in a minute. And then in about 10 minutes from now, we're going to speak with someone who assisted people getting out of their vehicles. His name is John Prince. And he was one of those unsung heroes of the 402 he owns soft surfaces, and hey, he gave a soft landing for a lot of individuals. So he'll join us to tell some stories. Coming up in about a half hour from now as well, we're going to ask the question, will there ever be another snow day in London, Ontario? Will there ever be? What do you mean? If we have a snowmageddon? Yeah, snow three days. It's made me feel old that some of our reporters are talking about what they were doing when Snowmageddon was on, and a lot of them were living it up on snow days. But now we have things in place to go clickety-click, and you're online. Waterloo's not having snow days anymore. We'll ask that. We'll talk about no extended break on the holidays for the Thames Valley District School Board and just find out how things are going. So lots of stuff still ahead in the first hour. Right now, we are lucky enough to have with us Nicole Azalos, who is an archivist with Lambton County Archives. And they are 
really, really beginning to explore Snowmageddon. Nicole, thanks so much for being here. How's today going? Oh, Nicole, can you hear us all right? We'll try and get you connected. I don't want to know that it's snowing already. I, I was just outside. It's, it's not snowing where you are, is it? No, it's sunny. Well, almost. Whew. All right, good. Yes, we've kind of got the same sort of weather here, and it looks to be warming over the next couple of days, and everything seems to be fine. But December 13th, 2010... Uh, anything but. Let's talk about what you are attempting to put together at Lambton County Archives. So a little bit of background on the Snowmageddon. So this snow emergency began on December 12th, and it saw about 1,500 people that were stranded along 402 and area roadways in these snow squall conditions. And as you mentioned, they didn't subside till the morning of the 14th. So what's really great about this event is over the course of this, of Snowmageddon, there's so many residents that were rescued by snowmobile bus and even the Canadian military uh, helicopters came in and all of those stranded were found to be safe. So you saw the aim of this is to capture all of these stories now as it's still in our thoughts. Like many of us, including myself, um, we all personally experienced and was impacted by this. So we're capturing these stories before they're gone. Like today will eventually become the past. So what can we do now to preserve our memories and stories? Great idea. So let's talk about your personal story. Where were you and what happened? (laughs) So I actually, I was south of Strathroy and uh, I was home from university. And I remember, um, I remember the day and it just, the cars started getting slower and slower on the road, and my mom was home that day. We were Christmas baking, and uh, next thing you know, it was just an absolute, it just was unbelievable. You could not even see the tree in front of our house, and it everything just came to a standstill. It, and then by the next, by the morning of the 14th, I remember going outside it was sunny, like we stayed home the whole time. We were very fortunate. We had a gas fireplace that kept us warm, and and uh, we brought some food to our neighbors across the road. And, uh, yeah, I remember the next morning, it was just so quiet outside. There was no cars. There was no animals. Like, you heard nothing but the howling of the wind. And that's when it was, and the sound of the snowmobiles very faintly in the distance. And that's what sticks out most to me. How eerie was that? For anybody who happens to be listening in San Diego right now and has never really experienced a flake, let alone that howling wind and nothing else, what was that like? It was, all you saw was snow because it was all fields that surrounded our house. And uh, the snow from the roof of our house, there was a massive snow drift that touched the snow from the ground. So the snow from the ground in our roof was actually touching, like it was connected and then it was just all you heard was just the wind whipping through the trees in the forest behind the field and just that it it wasn't like a freight train but it was a very loud just howl that just enveloped you Talking with Nicole from Lambton County Archives as they look to put together stories from Snowmageddon in 2010. Nicole, if somebody was a part of this, if they have a story to tell, what do you need them to do? So we have a lot of people coming to our Facebook and sharing stories on our posts on Facebook. 
Uh, but we do have a website set up. So on our lansonarchives.ca, you can go to our website and there is a button that you click to submit your Snowmageddon story. And part of that, we're not just collecting stories to preserve the stories, but we're also collecting stories that simultaneously helps emergency management coordinators better understand how our emergency preparedness has changed since the event and what we've kind of added to, you know, say our travel emergency kits or our home emergency kits to be prepared if something like this were to occur again in the future. Personally, have you added a few items? I haven't yet. I have been enjoying and taking in everything that everyone sent. We've had a great response so far, and one of the biggest things that has come out of it is how everyone really stepped up in a huge way and helped one another and made sure everyone was safe. There was um, one individual who brought in 30 people that were stranded around their home and gave them coffee and a warm place to stay until the snow cleared. And uh, that coming together of the first responders, people in the community that had snowmobiles or buses or shelter to help, um, basically everyone to really come through this event on the other side. So check out Lambton County Archives, post your story if you have it, let's get all the information together, and then you guys will have it there so that we we know what happened in 2010 in great detail. Nicole, thank you so much for this. We really appreciate the time. Thank you, Mike. That is Nicole Azalos, who is with Lambton County Archives, and that's just the tip of, do I say it? the iceberg, the snowberg, because in a moment we are going to be joined by one individual who played a massive role in helping people, and we continue to get stories that come in. If you have a Snowmageddon story, don't be shy. Email it to us as well. We'd love to share that on the air as we get closer to December 13th. You can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. So as Nicole from Lambton County Archives just said it, And we go through this with a number of things. If you let things slip into the past, that's where they stay. That's where they go. If you can jump all over something and put down the details when they're still relatively fresh in our memories, then you've got a whole lot of stories to tell, and they end up being way better. And that's kind of what's happening with Snowmageddon 2010. The Lambton County Archives are looking for your stories. Go to their Facebook page, as Nicole just told us, and make sure that you put what you had happen to you or put what you were able to do down so that they can have that going forward. Joining us right now is someone who remembers Snowmageddon 2010. He is the owner of Soft Surfaces. He is John Prince. John, how you doing today? I'm good. Let's kind of go back 10 years. Uh, What do you think about when someone says Snowmageddon 2010? Well, I just remember a tremendous storm, you know, the howling winds. I couldn't see the end of my driveway. And about maybe 10 or 11 o'clock at night, I looked out there and I saw a set of lights. And I thought, wow, there's, there's a truck actually just stopped right out in front of my house. And he's just sitting there on the road. And I noticed the lights were on, and then next morning, 
I realized that no, the lights aren't on. So I went out to to meet the, the, the one individual in the middle of the snowstorm, and I said, like, you know, are you okay? Um, and his truck had run out because the uh, air cleaner, there was so much snow and so much wind that the air cleaner had plugged up, and he was just sitting there in the freezing cold. And I said, you know, you should come in and, you know, just come in and get a coffee and get warmed up and get figured out. But he said, no, I can't leave my truck. I can't, I can't leave my truck because it's against company policy. It was like a tanker truck for gasoline. So I said, well, whatever, here's your coffee and have a nice life and uh, see you later. And then it was, you know, at all day long it blew and it was getting even worse. So I went out and I said to him, hey, listen, you know, this is, this is crazy. You know, you, you should come in to my house tonight. You've got no heat out there or anything. So he said, yeah, and he was a, a Sikh. And so he came into our house and uh, we kind of, and he says, you know, there's a guy behind me too, back behind me. I said, well, I'll tell you what, you stay here. I'll go get him too. So I went to the next truck, walked up there and said, hey, you know, in the storm, in the storm, you need to come and, and come inside. Can you, you, this is not good for you to be out here. So those guys, they ended up staying with us for the night. And, you know, we had a nice time and everything was fine. And then the next day I realized that, no, there's, the, there's just a huge row of people all up Highway 26, all the way up to the, all the, way up to the, the 402. And so I went and started knocking on doors and saying, hey, you know, you, you, need, you need to come in for breakfast. You need to get out of here. You've been, you've been out here for 40 hours or so. You need to come in. <clears throat> and so, yeah, everybody was kind of, yeah, that's great. Like, they were coming. So I said, okay, just stay here, and I'm going to keep walking back. And then when I get everybody in a big row, you can just all come in. So I just kept walking back, and next thing you know, I hit a, a tour bus, and uh, it was full of, with a tricky band group of people. So I banged on the door and I said, uh, hey, guys, and, and you, you just kind of push yourself into the, the bus. And they were all sitting there. I said, what are you guys doing? They said, well, we're surviving on Jack Daniels. I said, well, that's not going to be good. Um, you need to come in. And uh, so next thing you know, we basically pulled that whole group. Maybe there was like, I don't know, four, 35, 40 people. Yeah, at least probably that many people. And so they all came into the our house and... Uh, they all kind of sat around. We fed them breakfast and coffee and started talking to them. But I had no idea that the tricky guy was like some sort of rock star. And he was like famous in his own right. And he was going to a concert where he was going to perform in front of eight or 10,000 people. I was just treating like he was Joe Schmo, right? Well, he was walking around the house like, you know, I'm Mr. Cool and I'm tricky and I'm amazing. But I was just kind of looking at him going like, you know, I don't know who you are, but obviously you're, <laughs> you're pretty high on yourself. So anyhow, whatever. So anyhow, they stayed there all that day. And uh, in the storm, and now the, the lead singers, the female vocalists, they went in and got showers. And, you know, I would say the toilet seats got pretty warm. But other than that, <laughs> it was uh, it was good. And then what happened was, like, you know, we started running out of food toward the evening. So then I, I, I went around to the neighbors and got more food, and they kind of hung out. And then I realized, like, you know, these guys are going to be here for a long time. So what I did is I called my neighbor and... Um, he had a big cattle farm and he had a lot of heavy equipment. So the next morning he came out and he basically worked all that day going up the road and digging uh, trucks out of the, out of the snow, snow banks and out of the, out of the big drifts, giving them a jerk with a, uh, with a tow rope and, and pull them up to the road where it had been plowed so they could get out. And I would say maybe he took four or five hours and got it all freed up. And yeah, that was, that's kind of how it went. What a wild story. John Prince with us, owner of Soft Surfaces. So, John, estimated for us, how many people might you have had in your house at at the peak of this? I would say somewhere between 40 and 50. Whoa. 
And in in gathering them all up, you mentioned you wanted them all to kind of stay tight. Is that because the snow was still coming down in that way where you kind of had to stay where you could see something in order to walk around? No, I was just, they didn't know where my house was. I obviously knew where it was. And the snow was so blinding and the wind was blowing so hard that I said, you stay and I'm going to go to the very back of the truck. So I went back maybe 20 vehicles, right, and told the final guy, hey, listen, you know, what do you think of global warming now? And, uh, of course, we were all freezing. And then I said, okay, just follow me. And then we just kept walking up. And so by the time, you know, there was 8 or 10 or maybe 12 people on the tricky bus, right, because it's all the band, it's the keyboard, all those guys, they all came in too. And so then we just kind of made a single file um, you know, run for it. And basically, you know, 25 minutes later, everybody was in the house. Incredible. Well, John, it's a story that you've probably told a few times. Thanks for telling it for us right now. And thanks for taking some time out. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. That's John Prince, owner of Soft Surfaces at home and winds up looking out thinking one truck, one truck turns into two trucks, two trucks turns into a row of vehicles and 40 to 50 people in his house trying to keep warm and wait this thing out. And a tour bus surviving on Jack Daniels. See, who says rock and roll is dead? No way. As of 2010, that's still very rock and rolly. We will share some more stories as we go along. But that's the kind of stuff that Lambton County Archives is looking for. And so if you have anything like that, please pass that on to them. Check them out on Facebook, Lambton County Archives, because they're trying to piece together as many stories as they can so that they can put this together and have a a memoir of one of those where were you when and a lot of us might remember it just as a snowstorm or not having to go to work or not having to go to school or what have you but those who were on the 402 those who were near Strathroy those who were kind of near the epicenter of this storm where it just sat and snowed and snowed they've got different stories the number of people who spent the night in their vehicle and the idea that we're now 10 years later, have we learned? Because one of the things that you may have heard this morning, if you were listening to the morning show with Devin Peacock, is Global News Chief Meteorologist Anthony Farnell giving his winter forecast. And while he did say, hey, around here, a little bit of a milder winter, one thing he pointed to was that we could have some severe storms in January and February. And if one of those storms starts coming up from wherever it's coming from, coming from Alberta as a clipper, coming up from the southern United States and turning into snow and ice, if it looks down and says, wow, southwestern Ontario, good place to raise a family, nice spot to hang out for a while, we could have another snowmageddon. What's in your car right now? Do you have blankets? Do you have anything to eat? Maybe a bottle of JD? Eh? Stash that in the back? I know I don't. I know that I have my jumper cables in the garage. I should. I found them yesterday. I should, I should probably put those in the vehicle. But do you have one of those kits that can keep you safe just in case Snowmageddon repeats itself in 2020? The pandemic that we had in 
1920 is sort of here again a hundred years later those snowstorms they come up with uh, greater regularity be safe grab yourself maybe not a bottle of jack daniels but a bottle of something to keep yourself safe if the winter gets a little woolly. there is a pretty easy way to sum up life everything's okay until it isn't it's a pretty easy way. And sometimes you have to go through the until it isn't. But it's what you do with that that really shows who you are. And sometimes what you do with that can do some incredible, incredible things. When the Snow family was hit with a diagnosis of ALS, in June of 2019, that was their moment of everything is okay until it isn't. Chris Snow, Assistant General Manager of the Calgary Flames, talked to anybody who's ever met him. Incredible human. And he's only shown that many, many, many times over since. He was diagnosed with ALS. And we are joined right now by his wife, Kelsey Snow, to talk more about this story and what Chris is going through and what he has been doing, and maybe, just maybe, a reason to look at Lou Gehrig's disease a little differently. Kelsey Snow joins us on London Live. Kelsey, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Mike. Let's rewind time. Let's let's kind of go back to that moment when all of a sudden you heard a diagnosis that no one would ever wish on anyone else. How did you deal with that? Well, I think our immediate response was to take action. Um, Chris had been having some symptoms for a few months, and Chris has familial ALS, which affects 10 to 15% of all ALS cases. Um, most ALS is sporadic, meaning there's no family history, but um, Chris has a pretty extensive family history. In just two generations, he lost uh, two uncles, his father, and a 28-year-old cousin to this disease. So when he started to have symptoms, we knew... Um, you know, we weren't going into it blind. Uh, we knew what it could be. And as a result of that, he was diagnosed very quickly compared to most people who have ALS. Um, ALS is a process of elimination diagnosis. And most people, it takes, uh, you know, at least a year to be diagnosed, which is a very precious time um, that you lose then um, in being able to take, you know, what action there is to take. So we were lucky in that sense. And we immediately um, when we were told by a doctor here that they thought it was probably motor neuron disease, we decided um, right away we would we would go to Miami, uh, which is where his Chris's dad had been enrolled in a um, pre-symptomatic uh, familial ALS research study. So they knew his dad, um, they knew his family history, and luckily we were able to get in. I think within a week. Um, for a research visit there. And, you know, um, very quickly, you know, after being diagnosed, after the neurologist there said, yes, I think you're in the early stages of ALS, the next words out of his mouth were, now we get you enrolled in this stage three um, clinical trial. Uh, so Chris's ALS is caused by a mutated gene called SOD1. It causes only like 1% of all ALS. Um, but it causes his, and it was the first, I do believe, the first uh, mutation ever identified that caused ALS. So uh, thankfully, that means it is farthest along kind of in the research process. 
So this trial that they told us we should join was um, already in the third phase, which is a great thing for us. Our timing was um, was good in that sense. Um, and they had already kind of lined us up to get in it. And another week later, we were in Toronto getting stre- uh, screened for that trial. So I think our first reaction, while it was of like profound sadness, um, it was also one of action and what can we do? And, um, you know, luckily we are able to do something in a, you know, really profound way that most ALS patients still cannot. We're talking right now with Kelsey Snow whose husband, Chris knows the assistant general manager of the Calgary Flames, and right now is, is, as Kelsey has said before, living with ALS. And you say you didn't go into this blindly. You, you kind of knew what happened. You know how cruel ALS can be. But here we are. We're, we're now more than a year after that. Yeah. When you look at maybe what expectations might have been and where Chris is now, how do those two things compare, Kelsey? Well, Chris is a miracle. Like, there's no doubt about that. There's a reason why um, he is kind of held up in the ALS community as a beacon of hope um, right now. We were very lucky in being able to find, you know, get diagnosed early, which meant that Chris got into this trial early. And, you know, anytime you can do something as quickly as possible in an illness, um, as far as the treatment goes, the better, right? So Chris has a, there, there are different speeds of progression depending on what kind of ALS you have. Um, Chris has a very aggressive progressing mutation. Um, his uncles and his dad all died within nine months of being diagnosed, and his cousin died within 18 months of being diagnosed. And we are now 18 months out from his diagnosis, um, and you know more than that, 21 months out from his symptoms onset. So he should, by all you know measures, be dead right now, and he's instead downstairs working on his computer and. <laughs> You know, we'll take as soon as, you know, Calgary lets uh, minor hockey restart again, uh, you know, he'll take our kids to hockey practice and he'll coach their hockey teams and he'll take them sledding on the weekends and help flood the local rinks so that we can all play shinny. He lives a very full and normal life. He works like he always worked. Um, and while it hasn't been perfect for us, this drug, it has um, it has been it has been an absolute miracle. The fact that there are clinical trials going on, if we were to go back in time 10 years, 20 years, would anything like this have even existed? No, definitely not. Um, this this drug as it is, is one of the, you know, is from every neurologist I talk to, this is the best thing that you can be on. And again, the unfortunate thing in that sense is there's only 1% to 2% of all ALS is caused by this um, mutation, but the hope is that we find these drugs that start to work. They that you know they get approved um, for you know general you know for anybody that isn't in the trial that has this type of ALS, and we can use that science to further more more research. And this is an exciting time in ALS research, and there's a lot of things going on. But there you know, I am always cautious when I talk about how um, positive things are going for Chris because I never want people to think, oh, well, they've got that figured out now. Like, that's good. ALS, that's gone. <laughs> you know, yeah. I want people to be, I want people to be aware that this is a, this is a first step and Chris is the exception, not the rule. And as that is, you know, this drug isn't going to be in the form that we're getting it in the trial right now anyway. It, so far, we've, we, we know it's not an, it's not the magic bullet that we were looking for. And so we just need to do 
so much more research. We need, you know, the government, you know, both the government in Canada, the government in the United States to fund this type of research in a really big way. We've seen, you know, how, you know, really putting a ton of science and energy and money on a disease with COVID can really impact how quickly, you know, things can catch up with all of these vaccines that seem to be coming out with, you know, great efficacy. And if we could throw some of that same, you know, passion and science behind um, ALS research, we could really make, you know, a significant amount of headway. Well, you look at the trials that you talk about and the idea that the ice bucket challenge raised millions and millions and millions of dollars. And when that research begins, yeah, it can do incredible things. Kelsey Snow joining us. You've also been very active in another way. And that's not just, Hey, they had the ice bucket challenge. Let's all look at the clinical trials that have now started in research going into the fight against ALS. But, but the trick shot challenge began and and that absolutely took off what was it like to see some of the things coming in and some of the people who were taking part in all of this yeah that was so exciting and honestly it was a period in this year that we all needed that kind of a thing anyway uh we could all afford to spend an entire day trying to you know complete some crazy trick shot and it was so uplifting and there's so many sad things about this illness and there are so many hard conversations we have to have with our children you know, about what's going on and to be able to like show them this and have this be something really fun and exciting and positive. Um, you know, that was pretty um, invaluable to us. Uh, it was, it was awesome. It was uh, thought up by some people in the flames, um, you know, public relations and, and community outreach staff. And, and, you know, they did such a good job with it and they really, they really promoted it really well. Our players got behind us, people that Chris knew um, from when he was, a journalist and that I knew from when I was a journalist, like they all really, you know, kind of helped us out there. And it was really, really fun. And we, you know, raised some money, which was really awesome as well. And we hope that we can continue to find things like that to keep, um, you know, funding more research. What can the rest of us do? I mean, if if you don't really have a trick shot in you, but you still yeah. want to help out in some way, or or you're looking just to see if if you have a family member who maybe does have ALS, what can the rest of us do right now to keep this momentum going? Yeah, I think so. Obviously, we're you know we're trying to always raise funds for research, but raising money is is a hard thing to do right now in the in the world climate with everything that's gone on. So we understand that that's you know, we put a kind of a pause on those types of things. Um, you know, something that I do is I share our story. Um, I used to be a journalist before uh, we moved to Canada and I started staying home with my kids and I've started to write again, you know, instead of writing other people's stories as I used to do now, I'm writing our story. Um, because I really do believe that showing people, um, you know, real life examples of a family that's dealing with this helps them be aware of it. Even before the Ice Bucket Challenge, very few people really understood ALS. And and there are still so many people who don't really know what ALS is. And I think it's important for us to raise awareness. Uh, Raising awareness helps raise funds just because then people are seeing it and they they can feel it in a different way. So, you know, if you can't uh, raise funds sharing stories and you know being aware is is always something that's very you know powerful um you know i'm happy to share my story and i hope that other people share it as well uh so that we can keep putting faces uh to this disease and keep you know raising awareness 
Kelsey, thank you for what you are doing, and thanks so much for the time today. Please say hi to Chris for us, and uh, we'll share a few of the trick shots that have gone on in the last little while. I think you're right. We need another smile again. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Take care. You too. That's Kelsey Snow. Kelsey is the wife of Chris Snow, Flames Assistant General Manager, telling us his story as she has been doing in the fight against ALS. And you can go to ALSValorStudy.com to find out more about the trials that Chris Snow is in. That's ALSValor, V-A-L-O-R, ALSValorStudy.com. When you get an opportunity to get to the top of the mountain, you remember it. When at the top of the mountain you look around and there's a red light going on and you made it happen, well, that, that's something even better. Making it to the top of the mountain in the hockey world is playing in the NHL. And not long ago, Ken Reed wrote a book called One Night Only with Jeff Merrick, which featured conversations with players who had played one game in the NHL. Well, he's got a new book out right now called One to Remember, which is stories from 39 members of the NHL's One Goal Club. All it takes to get in is one goal. Hardest part, maybe, you can't score two. Please welcome, from Sportsnet, Ken Reed. Ken, thanks so much for being here. How you doing? Great. That's how you sum up my book. I, I'm going to start using that in all my other interviews, Mike. That was great. Well, you know what? I love what you have put together. You had hockey card stories, and then you had hockey card stories too. This almost feels like that sequel to the one game wonders where you find mm-hmm. guys who scored one goal. Tell us, because I always love to know how things like this get going. Mm-hmm. Did you start pouring over the stats one day when it was snowing outside, or, or how did you get going on this? Well, I think it's it's one of those things that anyone's ever played road hockey or even watched a game, they probably dreamed of scoring in the NHL, right? When you shoot the, the tennis ball into the net, you think, oh, this is in the NHL. So I just started wondering how many guys actually just scored once. And we have a stats guy at Sportsnet named Steve Fellin, and I asked him one night, and he said, give me a few minutes. He, uh, he emailed me 10 minutes later, and uh, there's about 350 guys who've just scored a single NHL goal, one and one only. So I, I looked down the list, and there was a couple names I recognized. Obviously, most I didn't. And I thought, well, these guys got to have stories, right? Because everybody has a story. And, and the old stats on Hockey Database, I love HockeyDB, but there's so much more than, than just the one under the goals department. So what went into that? What's it all about? So I started making a few calls, and away we went. Well, and the story of one goal in the NHL turns into so many other stories. I mean, things mm-hmm. like how much time guys who are just trying to break into the league live in a hotel or yeah. the choice that some of them have where do I abandon my NHL dream? When you were talking to them, were they were they nice and easy going about telling their story or did some of them say, you know what, I'd rather not talk about my NHL experience? Right. Um, everyone was open to talking about it, everyone that I got a hold of. Uh, some guys were, would kind of go, how are you going to do a book out of this? Like, you know, what, I said, well, let's just chat and let's see where it goes. Because, yeah, the, the one goal, it's, uh, it's kind of funny. I, I looked at the book as the one goal was the ending point. But for a lot of guys, the one goal was the starting point for another journey, right? Like, where did that – it wasn't just the story of what led up to that one goal, but it's what happened after that one goal. There was one gentleman I talked to, Les Kozak. He scored a goal for the Leafs in 1962. 
Uh, a couple games later, he got hit into the boards. Uh, they had to have emergency brain surgery. Uh, he had a giant golf ball-sized hole in his head. He never played again. So he's out on the sidelines. He's thinking, what do I do? A year before that, he was going to become a priest. He, he left the monastery to play minor league hockey for the Leafs. Uh, he started studying uh, in Rochester, where he was laid up in a hospital bed, started going to college, and lo and behold, he becomes Dr. Les Kozak, this this world-renowned scientist who just happened to be once upon a time scored a goal in the NHL. So if he didn't get that goal and didn't get drilled a few games later, you know, I think ultimately he says he would have went to school, but would he have started that early? Would he have had this career? So that I thought that was kind of an interesting story as opposed to, you know, I scored a goal and uh, I stayed in hockey for the rest of my life, which there's nothing wrong with that, but that's what I expected. I didn't, I didn't expect to talk to a scientist or, and then talk to a neurosurgeon and then talk to a guy in Slapshot when I said I'd do this book, but I did. We're talking with Ken Reed from Sportsnet about his new book, One to Remember, stories from 39 members of the NHL's One Goal Club. And you look at the number of reasons why only one goal is scored for these players. Mm-hmm. You bring up injury. You had to talk to guys who went through some tough stuff or it wasn't their choice or it wasn't because, you know, maybe they got that call and, and they had that dream game, but they just weren't at that level. But guys like Joey Hishin or yeah. even we were talking about Brent Tremblay before we took our last mm-hmm. break and his back gives out on him and, and he just has to make that choice. Yeah. How do these guys deal with that and, and kind of leave that hockey career behind? Well, in Brent's case, like he, he found God when he was injured in the hospital. This is a guy that, that's 21, 22 years old. He's in the NHL. The next thing he knows, he can hardly walk. He can hardly get out of bed. Uh, for Joey Hishin, I mean, we all are, I'm sure in London, tons of people remember that hit in the Memorial Cup that he took. Uh, Joey Hishin was supposed to have a long career. Uh, he got banged up pretty good and was never the, he got, well, he got banged up extremely poor, bad, I should say. And he, he was never the same player later. He, he just scored one goal. So, yeah, a lot of guys had to deal with disappointment. Um, and I think uh, a lot of guys, as time went on, they learned that that disappointment wasn't necessarily a disappointment, but it was an amazing accomplishment. And that's kind of where the book took me. Um, there's When something happens in life that you don't expect or that you don't want, you can make the best out of it or you can dwell on it. So I think time in a lot of cases heals all wounds and I think guys learn to appreciate uh, the fact that they did make it to the NHL and that they did score a goal. I talked to a guy named Jason Padol and he was a highly regarded player coming out of the Western League. He was a big scorer in the American League. It just never clicked for him in the NHL and he was traded from Florida to Toronto straight up for Kirk Muller. So that comes with expectations. But when he got traded to Toronto, all he was told was practices tomorrow at 11. No one and, and, and he's thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm playing for the Leafs. I'm 21, 22 years old. There's all this pressure on me. What do I do? Well, nobody told him. He ended up scoring one goal in the NHL and left the game kind of going, what, what happened? And from that, instead of dwelling on it and being miserable about it, he's now uh, an off-ice mental skills coach to help young guys prepare for what is in store for them. So he took his experience and, and is trying to shape other guys so that they don't they don't run into the challenges that, that he faced, not knowing what to do. And, I mean, that's, that's kind of the way hockey was for maybe even up to five, ten years ago. You had to figure it out for yourself. And uh, a lot of guys couldn't figure it out. And some of those guys are in the book. And some guys that did figure it out, that never thought they'd make it to the NHL, who did score one, they're in the book as well. I mean, 
there's guys in the in the book who who were just psyched to have a tracksuit in junior A who made it, ended up making it all the way to the NHL. Ken Reed with us. New book, one to remember, stories from 39 members of the NHL's one goal club. And then you've got some great stories of just the, the absolute unexpected. And one of them even goes back to a hockey card. I love it. You've got the Billy Smith hockey card. And yeah. anybody who had that hockey card was able to flip it over and read the story of how he scored a goal in the NHL. I don't think goalies in the 70s or early 80s could even think about scoring goals. You think about no. the, the lumber that they had in their head. You yeah. couldn't take that stick and shoot a puck down the ice. Didn't happen, no. but he was credited with a goal. And what an amazing story that is. Sure, he makes a save against Colorado. Puck goes into the corner. Ford throws it back to the point. There's nobody there all the way into the empty net. Initially, somebody else got credit. After the game, they changed it to Billy Smith. And Billy didn't really care. Uh, he got a goal. He was the first goalie to score a goal. And he's kind of like, yeah, whatever. And he's still still not a big deal to Billy. That's one of the great things about Billy Smith. He's a four-time Stanley Cup champion. He's a Hall of Famer. And he just kind of takes it all with a grain of salt. Uh, but, yeah, he's the first goalie to score. But you're right. I mean, remember when Ron Hextall came around? You're like, how's he shooting that puck? Because even when he was shooting the thing in 87, those sticks were still heavy then. I mean, now my my kid can handle the puck. He's seven years old with a goalie stick. But then, yeah, you wouldn't think of a goalie as, as scoring a goal. But, yeah, now now I think every goalie kind of practices it at the end of practice shooting on that empty net, right? Right. And you did mention the Hanson brothers and the idea that you get to talk to a Hanson brother because as much as everybody knows them from Slapshot, no, 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 they, they could play. And Dave Hanson is in this club. He is. I remember watching Slapshot as a kid and, and that scene where the Hansons get their first ship and they're all skating three of them side by side up the ice. And I'm going, these guys can skate. Like, did they play? And, of course, that was before the Internet, right? And then I, years later, I find out, yeah, they all played pro. A couple of them played in the NHL. And, and Dave Hanson actually scored in the NHL. And he says people still come up to him and ask, did you actually play pro? And he'll say, yeah, I even scored a goal. <laughs> of course, nobody asked him about the goal, so I was thrilled to ask Dave Hansen about, you know, part of his life that that nobody talks about. All they all they talk about is, you know, none of that stinking root beer, and we brought our toys. But Dave Hansen was a legit pro hockey player who once upon a time scored a goal for the for the Minnesota North Stars against his old team, the Detroit Red Wings. So, I mean, to get to call up a guy in, that was in Slapshot, a move that, that's my all time favorite movie, that Shawshank Redemption. I mean, it's awesome and. And I think the reader will kind of just enjoy the fact that it's a really casual conversation with Dave. And, and for him, I think even a bigger thrill was watching his son Christian grow up and score a goal, three goals for the Leafs. So Christian's the family uh, leader in goals. He's got three and the old man has one. Nice. Well, his story is in there as there is a club that has just over 300 members, one goal in the NHL, and 39 of their stories are in one to remember. Ken, thanks for putting this together, because for a hockey fan starved for hockey right now, this kind of, this hits the spot. It is, yeah, and it's a, it's a nice little distraction. Books are a great distraction, right? I always say your phone is not a distraction. Sit down and read a book if you can, and if it's not mine, please read another one, and Support your local bookstore, and you can pick up one to remember at your local bookstore or on Amazon. And, hey, when the London Knights get going, everybody, keep your eye on Landon Sim from New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. He's going to be a gooder for the Knights, guaranteed. Love it. Love it. His dad was just a thrill to watch when he was with oh. the Sarnia Stings. So. Johnny, total sniper, eh? My brother played minor hockey with Johnny starting in Pee Wee, and he, watching Johnny's career was just just fantastic. And then. Please make the Knights retire Dennis Marouk's number as well. 
Well, you can check out that book done by Ken as well. Ken, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. That's Ken Reed. One to remember. Stories from 39 members of the NHL's One Goal Club. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.